This is episode number 645 with Carly Taylor, lead machine learning engineer for Activision's Call of Duty franchise. Today's episode is brought to you by Colina, the testing platform for machine learning. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today, we've got the absolutely fabulous, self-styled rebel data scientist, Carly Taylor, joining me on the program. Carly grew rapidly from a senior data scientist role to simultaneously holding expert machine learning engineer and senior manager of security strategy titles since joining Activision two years ago. At Activision, she specifically works on Call of Duty, one of the top grossing video game franchises of all time with over $30 billion in sales and 250 million global users annually. Prior to Activision, Carly rapidly grew from analyst to data scientist roles. She's amassed a LinkedIn following of 75,000 plus by regularly posting fruitful tips on breaking into a data science career and progressing within it. She advocates for women in STEM, tech, and gaming careers. She offers one-to-one -one career consulting to anyone who desires it. We've got a link in the show notes for that. And she holds a master's in computational chemistry from the University of Colorado. And she also completed the Galvanized Data Science Immersive Program. Today's episode certainly has technical tidbits throughout that will be useful to hands-on practitioners, but much of the wide-ranging conversation will be fascinating to any listener, particularly if you have an interest in video games, the so-called metaverse, or real-time machine learning. In this episode, Carly details what the future of gaming holds. She talks about why low latency is critical for an optimal gaming experience and the tools that online engineers use to make that online low latency experience happen. She talks about her favorite operating systems, software packages and keyboards, how to transition effectively from a quantitative academic background into data science, how to file a patent, and why she's called the rebel data scientist. All right, you ready for this rebellious episode? Let's go. Yeah, Carly Taylor, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. Where in the world are you calling in from? I am calling in from beautiful Santa Monica, California. Ah, nice. And uh, so we know each other through a few different people. We'd never had a conversation before, but you'd been showing up on my LinkedIn feed over and over. And I was like, who is this cool machine learning expert, Carly Taylor, with all these followers? <laughs> and how come she hasn't been on the show yet? And then I finally got the courage together to ask you to be on the program. Uh, I'm so and, glad that you did. <laughs> and then I, and that very same week that I asked you, and you said yes right away, um, Serge Massis, who is our researcher on the program, I asked him, he'd been researching, he's been researching on the show for like at least six months. Okay. And I don't know how it had never occurred to me to ask him this question before, but I was like, Serge, is there, are there, is there anyone out there that you think we should definitely have on the show? And he sent back three names, and one of them was Carly <gasps> Taylor. Serge mm -hmm. is such good people. I love that. 
Yeah, and then we found out in chatting just before we started recording that you also know several other guests that have been on the show, like Christina Stathopoulos, who's in episode number 603, Joe Reese, who is in episode number 595. Oh, and I should mention that Surge has an amazing episode. Yes. Um, Unexplainable AI, number 539. Uh, it's one not to miss. Um, so yeah, so lots of connections. Um Carly, you're a data scientist at Activision. I am. Um, and so uh, you work particularly on a video game that a lot of people love. <laughs> uh, One of the I best see. in the world. I'm my unbiased opinion. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so you work on implementing and overseeing machine learning projects for Call of Duty to detect and minimize disruptive behavior in the game. Uh, and you're also a senior manager of security strategy. So what do those roles entail? How do they relate to each other? What is the impact for all of those, uh, <laughs> those, those hardcore Call of Duty fans out there? Yeah, I'm, I'm basically playing like Pokemon with my titles, like trying to collect them all. And just how many <laughs> can I have? <laughs> Simultaneously. So, yeah. Exactly. Just do all the things. Um, yep. You hit the nail on the head. I have two titles. Uh, I'm an individual contributor data scientist at Activision, and I'm also a senior manager for security strategy. Um, both of those titles really come down to one thing. I am trying to find the best ways to use machine learning to make our game safer and more fun for our players. Nice. So obviously, uh, you can't dig into the particulars of security strategy at at your specific firm, or you'd be, you know, opening up opportunities for security lapses. But you're working at the intersection of cybersecurity and data science. So, what kinds of problems would a data scientist working in that space uh, be tackling in general? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, this is such a hot space. That's like cybersecurity is growing, right? We've had a lot of high level. Uh, hacks and things going on in the in the world that people are becoming more aware of how important it is to have a good cybersecurity strategy. And then we also have data science that continues to just be like, you know, in my opinion, the hottest job ever. And so kind of trying to marry these two things together is something, a place that I think is really exciting for people to learn and grow. Um, you know, what I would say is most of what I've seen in the data science cyberspace are people working on things like credit card fraud, right? have all of these banks who are trying to make sure that when you go to, you know, buy popcorn at the movies, your credit card doesn't get declined. But if someone goes to buy popcorn at the movies a thousand miles away from where you actually live, they might say that this is a suspicious charge and try to, you know, decline the charge or not let it go through. Um, there are a ton of people working in the space to try to find anomalous behavior. You know, I remember when I was in like my boot camp and when I was in school, I would always try to drop the outliers from a data set, right? That was kind of what you were taught to either, you know, if something's not available, just infer zero or drop it completely. Uh, and I think, honestly, now that I work in this space, some of the most interesting data science problems actually exist within the outliers. Mm -hmm. Trying to understand outlier behavior and anomalies, why you see anomalies in your data set. And if they're true anomalies, how you can flag them and uh, try to get to the root of the the cause. That is interesting. I had not thought about that. I am still 
all the kinds of problems that I'm solving, the outliers are something that I want to do. <laughs> yeah. And I hadn't thought about that, how it's those kinds of rare anomalies mm-hmm. that are actually the most meaningful thing to you potentially. Yeah. I also liked how you said that data science is the hottest job ever, because in the very next episode of the show, assuming that everything goes to plan with production and recording and everything, episode number 647 will have Tom Davenport, who is the person who coined 10 years ago the idea of data science being the wow. sexiest job of the 21st century. A true hero. What a pioneer. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so yeah, super interesting example there. Um, yeah, the relationship between cybersecurity and data science. And I also like the point that you made there that these are two very popular fields. Yes. So data science, enormously fast-growing field still today, cybersecurity as well. And so if you're a listener out there who's thinking of getting started in data science and you're not sure where to start, if you want somewhere that... <laughs> Come on dumb, in. Yeah, doubly There's hot. dozens of us. <laughs> <laughs> nice, yeah, there you go. So that's a great tip. Um, all right, so... Uh, in addition to security, another kind of problem that must be very important in gaming is uh, having things be low latency. Yeah. Like people are playing games online with other people all over the world and milliseconds matter. Like yes. when somebody's sniping you in Call of Duty <laughs> uh, or you see that grenade fly into the room or whatever, uh, you need to be able to react and have those reactions um, uh computed yes. instantaneously uh, and spread around the world. So uh, yeah, are you able to elaborate a little bit on that and tell us like what kinds of roles enable this kind of super low latency optimal gaming experience? For sure. Yeah, this is such an interesting area for me because we hire so many online engineers. Um, and I've been looking at the space recently and thinking, you know, it used to be that like networking, online engineering, network protocols was like a cool space people wanted to go into. And then I think in the last probably 10 years, that's shifted a little bit because it's no longer in vogue. People felt like, ah, you know, all the problems that needed to get solved with the internet have been solved. For the most part, we've, we understand how to handle networking protocols and, you know, everything here is good to go. And I think now with, you know, the renewed importance for online games, you know, that rely on Mm. the backbone of the internet in order to be able to perform, like you just said, and Mm. how games, what players want and what I want as a player is for games to just keep getting bigger and bigger, right? To me, the most fun I have is knowing I'm in a lobby with 150 other real people from all over the world, Right. right? And we're like experiencing something together. And I think that's really incredible. But the only thing that makes that possible are the people who are working on our online engineering and online networking. And it is such a hot field now that's going to keep getting bigger. So if this is an area that you're interested in getting into and you're excited to figure out like what makes the games you play possible, I'd say that this is an awesome place to start spending your energy. Um, And the same thing for data science, right? Like I thought I knew how to write optimized code, specifically SQL. Like I thought I could write something that would run pretty quickly. And Mm -hmm. let me tell you the mistakes that I have made in just not understanding exactly how SQL evaluates, exactly how PySpark is going to work behind the scenes to make something even faster, exactly Mm -hmm. how to store my data so that you can retrieve it really quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. I have learned a lot 
in the pursuit of getting things done quickly. (laughs) That is super interesting. And you have opened my mind just now to a whole new career title. I was not aware of the title online engineer. Yeah. Yes. We specifically hire online engineers. I work with a lot of them every single day. They're my favorite people. Um, If you think you have the chops, always looking. (laughs) Cool. There you go. Are you unit testing your machine learning models? You certainly should be. If you're not, you should check out Colina. Colina is an ML testing platform for your computer vision models. It's the only tool that allows you to run unit and regression tests at the subclass level on your model after every single model update, allowing you to understand the failure modes of your model much faster. And that's not all. Kalina also automates and standardizes your model's testing workflows, saving over 40% of your team's valuable time. Head over to Kalina's website now to learn more. It's www.kalina.io. That's K-O-L-E-N-A dot I-O. Um, and another thing that could potentially be interesting real time in a video game. So in addition to obviously having to have everything be super low latency for humans to be interacting with each other, are there elements where we need to have machine learning happening in real time? Yes, a hundred percent. You know, I think that there were some big companies that really like pioneered this, right. Trying to get us to the forefront of how you would actually do machine learning in real time. Um, and have been pushing the boundaries, luckily, for people like me who came after, right, trying to use things like Kafka streaming and figuring out, like, what exactly does this look like? Um, And yes, I would say that the more that we need to focus on making decisions as quickly as possible, whether that looks like um, recommending an advertisement to someone or, you know, making a decision in a game about something that needs to happen or is happening, Uh, the more focus we need to get on quick models that can have a quick turnaround, right? Um, Nice. In some games, that could include things like the bad guys. Yes, yes. They need to be, yeah, fully automated, uh, but potentially operating online. Um, Yeah, that's super cool. Uh, I'm so out of the loop on like fun new video games. I used to be really big into Grand Theft Auto. Oh my gosh, Grand Theft Auto is so fun. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what if you around? liked Grand Theft Auto for the just like run around, because that's what I always did. I don't think I ever oh, did yeah. missions. I just wanted oh, yeah. to like, you know, go around and mess things up. <laughs> oh, I, I like just leaving everything pristine. So what? yeah, okay, yeah, that's, yeah. That's a little crazy. I, I like, I, you know, I just, just drive around, follow the road rules. It would drive me crazy that I couldn't signal. Oh like I couldn't put it on the right hand or the left hand signal in Grand Theft Auto, but the bots can, and they they expect that behavior from you. So when you don't put your turn, if you just turn without putting your turning signal, people will be like pedestrians will be surprised. Yeah, people will honk at you, and I'm like, I can't do it. They're broken. Yeah, and see, here I am. I'm just like running people over, rear-ending people. You know, you try to get to five stars. That's the whole point of the game, or at least that's what I thought. No, no, <laughs> most I'm, I'm wanted. Just, <laughs> I'm just trying to like I'll go I'll go buy a new suit. You need and, to play uh, a trucking simulator where you can drive a truck through America, follow the road actually, rules. I've played that. I that was an early uh like 10 years ago I worked as a trader at a hedge fund and we got like uh-huh. an early uh VR system and that was one of the like two games that we had. It was really like, Yeah, real life trucking. 
Uh, yeah. That's the kind of crazy stuff that you get into on a trading floor in New York. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, that does not what I would have thought the traders were getting into, but, you know, nothing surprises me anymore. <laughs> uh, I couldn't for the life of me. Like, you'd have to, like, back a truck into, like, um, like it was pretty easy driving on the highway, but then you'd always, you know, you, you have to make a delivery. And you have to like back in yeah. to like a warehouse. I can do it. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> this road can't handle the weight of my big rig. Like very <laughs> real world situations. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a, I, I don't know. I like, I like my video games really boring. I like my film and my TV really boring too. The less that happens, the more I enjoy it. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like you just set me up to shade a whole bunch of TV shows, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, we're, we're very much off piece here, but I think it's because like, like so much of like my work day is like so intense and there's like yeah. all this stuff that has to be done. And I'm just like, to be able to watch something and just kind of like relax and it's like, like no decisions are being made and yeah. And like calming. beautiful cinematography. Yeah. And that's kind of what it was with GTA as well. It was like, I can just like drive around and enjoy like different kinds of environments. Okay. Well, just I was going to recommend you play just cause next, which is the opposite. So now I'm going to revoke that recommendation because if you want straight chaos, that that's the game for you. <laughs> just cause. I haven't uh-huh. even heard of that. It's literally like, it's like, just because like, why would you blow this helicopter up or fly it into the water supply? Like <laughs> <laughs> that's a real, that's a real game. You can get it on uh-huh. like, just cause. Oh. Yeah. It's great. It's cool. Super fun. There's a it's great... for the chaotic people like me in the world who nice. uh, to listen to relax. I listen to heavy metal and then play just <laughs> blow. Up now, interestingly, <laughs> I do listen to metal, so I don't know. Um, You're just that was an also, enigma. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I guess yeah. Nobody's nobody's one dimensional. Um, <laughs> at least not on the data science podcast. Um, I'm sure our listeners are multi dimensional as well. All right, cool. So we've got some game recommendations. We've learned about some new gaming-related careers. Uh, what's the future of gaming, Carly? There's, you know, we've got faster and faster processors. More yeah. and more data can be stored. More and more people are connected on the internet and playing video games with each other. What's what's going to happen next? What's exciting? Yeah, you know, I've got a lot of guesses about this that are just founded in what I like to play personally and what I like to do. Mm-hmm. More um, destruction. Yeah, if I had to take a guess, it's be things that You'll get be, blown up better. Oh. <laughs> so something, yeah, like so something that used to drive me crazy in the few moments where like I would get bored and finally like start blowing stuff up in Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> there's like so many kinds of structures that don't get blown up. You know what yes. I mean? Like, and that's that's disappointing. So you're saying that maybe in the future everything will have real physics. You know, what's interesting is that idea of persistence is really like plaguing to like how you would build a game. You know, like, let's say we're in a place that has snow and we're walking. How long do you let our footsteps persist in the snow? Like decisions like that, that will add to the overhead of the game. Mm -hmm. How persistent is the world for everyone involved? Do you see Mm -hmm. my footsteps as well? Or is it just Mm -hmm. on my PC that I see them? Like those kind of design decisions add latency and overhead and all the kind of things that you try to minimize. And so, yeah, you're constantly looking for things like that, that are like, (laughs) make it cool and realistic, but also don't like blow up, you know, the footprint of the game. (laughs) 
Wow. Um, physics being real. Yeah, that'd be super cool. Uh, persistence, that's super important. Um, okay, but those don't sound... <laughs> like the future super, of gaming. This is, this is super <laughs> the future of gaming is everyone's footsteps are always there. <laughs> you heard yeah. it here first, folks. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, you know, I'd say that. So for me as a player, like that is part of the fun. I was like, how many people can we get in the same experience? How many people right. can we really have doing the same thing at once? So to me, I see the future of gaming as games getting even bigger, you know, the experience getting even more and more like across different people, across different countries, um, bringing more people together. I also see the future as being um, a place where different people play games than maybe they do now. You know, part of my content strategy on LinkedIn has always been to speak to people who maybe don't see themselves in a game dev role or maybe don't see themselves reflected in the standard like characters in a video game, right? Because it's mm -hmm. traditionally been this male dominated field. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. the future of gaming is democratizing that more. Mm -hmm. Like we're seeing different people playing video games than maybe we thought. Um, we're seeing mobile gaming becoming like this exploding into the scene you know it's always been big but i think the future of mobile games is getting even bigger as our phones get more and more capable um and so i think there's a lot of interesting exciting areas where this is just going to keep growing um and now video gaming it's a bigger industry than hollywood and the music industry combined and so like the yeah. potential is unlimited yeah, that is, that's, I don't know the stats offhand and you might, but when games like Call of Duty come out, they like will in a week eclipse yeah. the top selling blockbuster film of all time. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that's happening more and more often now. And I think that's just going to become the norm. I bet now Hollywood is going to benchmark themselves against us, you know? Maybe that's something that they'll very much try to avoid. <laughs> yeah. They're going to be like, we actually outsold this top video game this week in the oh, box office. And they're right. going to try to like flex that way. As oh, opposed right, to the other right. way around. Like they've always been the measuring stick for entertainment, you know? Mm -hmm. Not anymore. We're coming. Cool. Through. Well, yeah. And it, it, interestingly, it blends together a lot of like, you know, I'm like 10 years out of date on stuff like Grand Theft Auto, for example. But it had such beautiful cinematic sequences in it just amazing yeah like i would get moved playing yes. the game yeah uh and the music i used to love like so that was one of the things i'd be driving around oh my gosh the radio stations yeah. in grand theft auto i need a spotify playlist that's just grand theft auto radio they have them what yeah spotify has them spotify oh has yeah, like the radio stations from like, so for me, I think it was GTA 4 was like the big yeah. one for me 10 years ago. For me, and it was Vice City. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I, I bet they have that one too. But uh, yeah, Spotify has those for sure. That's awesome. After you listen to this episode, everyone, go find the Grand Theft Auto playlist on Spotify. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Here's some music to listen to while you code. <laughs> for sure. Um, and it would also, it would open my eyes to other genres because somehow in a virtual experience, yeah, I am more open to being a different kind of person than I, I am that. in real life. So I don't typically listen to hip hop, yeah, but I would listen to it in Grand Theft Auto and be like, oh, wow, some yeah. of this is amazing. I love this. And it would broaden my vistas. There's a specific jazz song 
that I'll dig up and put in the show notes. You should. That is like one of my favorite songs ever. I think it's called like Songs of Innocence or like maybe that's the album that it's from. Okay. But I absolutely I can't wait to listen to this. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, and I don't know, there might be, there's probably something interesting there around the psychology of uh, when you're in that virtual environment, it's like a, it's, it gives you carte blanche to change your habits and, and experiment with different ways of being and thinking than maybe you wouldn't um, in the real world. I totally agree. Yeah. I think it opens up different horizons and perspectives to people. You know, you meet people from everywhere. I think it's just anyone that says video games are always negative, I think has probably not played enough um, because I've met some of my best friends playing games. And I know a lot of people who have too. I was just at a wedding where the best man and the groom met (laughs) playing Call of Duty. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So they'll like, meet by chance they'll be like assigned on the uh-huh. same team or something yeah. Yeah. and then and you you're just chatting you wear your headset and you chat uh-huh. and and then you can in the future meet up with them again like you're yeah, like okay you can let's add meet them again as a friend and hang out yeah cool are there spaces yeah. in call of duty for just like hanging out <laughs> I, honestly what i do with my friends is we get on the headset and then we all edit like our weapons and our loadouts. And so we just chat while we all play around with our guns. And sometimes we don't even get into a match. Oh, really? So <laughs> that's like talk about like, Oh, I just got this scope. Is this good? And like give each other recommendations and shoot the shit. Yeah. It's fun. Oh, ah, cool. Yeah. Um, and so then what do you think about the emergence of, in some ways to you, it must seem comical that there's this like supposed separate thing called a metaverse when what you're just like, this is like, how is call of duty not already that? I think that, you know, at least the people that I follow that talk a lot about the metaverse would argue that online gaming is already the metaverse. And I think that the building blocks, like I said, of online engineering and low latency machine learning are going to be the future careers and the future of what else we think the metaverse might be. But when I think of the metaverse, that's exactly what I think of is just a bunch of people online experiencing something together. Right. And it's, it doesn't have to be this like dystopic vision that I think people think of when they think of um, maybe what like Facebook is, is maybe trying to push where it's overrun mm-hmm. with advertisements and it's a way mm-hmm. for companies to kind of monetize or monopolize. I think that the future of the metaverse, at least what I hope it ends up being as a consumer is a place like the internet is now where it's an open forum and hopefully, you know, the, it continues to be a little bit more democratized where, you know, there's not one company that owns the internet. Right. Even though like Mm -hmm. Google's kind of getting there, but they still don't. (laughs) Right. Like you can avoid Google and still go on the Internet if you want. And I hope that the metaverse is the same way where it's a joint collaborative effort with a bunch of different companies and a bunch of different places for people to experiment. Maybe people make their own content, you know, the same way we do on on LinkedIn. And it's got a it. So less of, you know, just a place to get served ads. <laughs> got it. Got it. Got it. So the metaverse would be like, it would have some kinds of open standards that would allow yeah. interoperability. So somebody could be in call of duty and then like walk through a door and all of a sudden they're in like, um, some other, <laughs> some other yeah. companies, like, you know, it's not an Activision product, 
but you just you you from this Activision product, you can interact outside with completely different companies or charities, um, open source uh, groups. Yeah, whatever you yeah, want, yeah. right? Like it, it'd be kind of like a better version of what the internet is now, I would hope, you know, right, where we right, can get right. more connected and not less connected. Cool. Is there a specific, are there specific games out there that you would recommend for listeners if they're just into this idea of like socializing online in a virtual environment? Um, I think that there are some probably like second life type of games mm. that you could play where you can socialize. One, yeah. I honestly don't play them very much. <laughs> Most of my socializing is done in Call of Duty. I'm going to be totally honest. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I also like to play solo games as well. So I may be on the opposite spectrum of someone who likes to decompress and be alone while I play games too. And so I mm -hmm. go back and forth. Oh, me for um, sure. That was yeah. always like... Yeah, I like it's kind of nice to have, you know, after, especially after a work day of where like every decision matters. Yes. It's yes. so nice to be able to go into a place where like it just doesn't matter. Yes. Like yes. you're not in, impacting anybody. It's just exactly bits flipping in uh -huh. the box underneath my TV. Playing like <laughs> Animal Crossing and it's just very positive, <laughs> happy experience. You know, there's no, no critical decisions. We're talking yeah. about turnips, you know, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound great. Um, You're like, cool. sign me up for turnips. I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> Mathematics forms the core of data science and machine learning. And now with my Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning course, you can get a firm grasp of that math, particularly the essential linear algebra and calculus. You can get all the lectures for free on my YouTube channel. But if you don't mind paying a typically small amount for the Udemy version, you get everything from YouTube, plus fully worked solutions to exercises and an official course completion certificate. As countless guests on the show have emphasized, to be the best data scientist you can be, you've got to know the underlying math. So check out the links to my Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning course in the show notes or at johncrone.com slash Udemy. That's johncrone.com slash U-D-E-M-Y. So, all right. So that was a very interesting foray into... Uh, video games without really much data science talk at all. So let's bring it back to that a little bit. Um, what kinds of tools or software packages do you use regularly or are excited about that our listeners should hear about? Yeah, so I actually just learned that this is one of Surge's favorite packages, but oh. I love the SHAP package in Python for mm -hmm. using Shapley values to do explainable um, modeling. I think that as a data scientist, one of the best things you can do for yourself, for your stakeholders, for the people you're mentoring is to make everything you do more explainable. And I think that starts with having a well-defined problem and a well-defined problem space, a well-defined solution of what done means for whatever project you're working on, mm -hmm. and then being able to walk even non-technical audiences through what exactly you're doing, how your solution is going to help th solve their problem, and what the results of what you've done mean, right? If they're asking you why a player is churning out of a game, let's say, you need to be able to explain, okay, this is what the model saw, and this is what I think in, in real terms this means for the business, and what the model is telling us, all these features when they interact, what that means. Um, 
And I think that can help every data scientist become more effective and be seen as a more trusted collaborative partner, as opposed to this person who knows this kind of magic like Python and can put build machine learning and no one knows what that means. And it's all a big mystery. You know, when you're early in your career, you might fall into the trap of feeling like that gives you so that gives you power that you know this thing that other people don't. And it does, in a sense, it very much does. But what gives you the ultimate power is making other people feel like they can understand what you do and empowering them to think like, hey, I can actually understand data science. It doesn't have to be this nebulous thing. It can be something that I can use in my workflow, right? And you can kind of open it up a little bit. And I think that will take people to the next level, at least in their careers. That's what's worked for me. It's become almost a cliche on the show that when I ask people, what do you look for in people that you hire? That is the number one thing that people say. Is really? Yeah, yeah. The ability to like, great that you have all this technical background, uh-huh. but being able to communicate that to other people on the data science team or outside of the data science yes. team to other people in the company, to external stakeholders, being able to convey in a way that people can understand and show the impact of what you're doing yes. is, yeah the most desired skill um, that we look for. And actually, I'm going to ask you that question right now. Uh, but well, you just, just answered it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. What, um, wait, wait, wait. Just before we get to that, and I ask okay. you what you look for in people that you hire, um, I just want to also make the point that you, uh, before the program, when we were talking about SHAP, you described specific functionality that I thought was really cool that I, I hadn't thought about using that package for uh, and it's kind of obvious to me now, which is just for plotting interaction terms in a way that you can yeah. easily see how all the different interaction terms in your model are interacting with each other yes. and having their impact on your outcome variable. Yes. Um, I love that because, you know, a lot of us fall into the trap of just looking at like feature importance values, right? And you get some sort of magnitude that means nothing other than it's relative magnitude to another term, right? But it doesn't really tell you anything about, let's say, you know, for credit card fraud, one of the most important features could be the distance that someone from their home is making a charge, right? And it might seem obvious to us from intuition that for the model, it's probably the larger the distance that you are from your normal home, the more likely a charge is to be fraud. But you can't say that definitively just by looking at a feature importance, right? It could be that the closer you are to home, the more likely that a credit card transaction is fraudulent. And so without some sort of like directional like explanation, you kind of don't know that. And that it, there are situations where it becomes more complicated, where it might be useful to understand not just the magnitude, but the direction that a feature has on the outcome and on the prediction that your model's making. Yeah, and uh, I think also one of the key points you were making was that the interaction between multiple of our independent variables with each other, right? So um, distance is only a factor when also some other thing is going on, like they're not using a chip in pin card or something. Yeah, yes, exactly. Cool. Um, All right, so then we can go to the question that I was just What do you, other than communication, which everyone knows is super important, (laughs) what else do you look for in people that you hire? Um, I would say I look for people who love solving problems Um, because at the end of the day, you know, what we do is we try to solve problems for other people. 
we solve problems for ourselves. We're constantly faced with new challenges and new problems. And if you're the kind of person who likes to put puzzles together in your spare time or loves when your family asks you for IT help, because when stuff breaks, you're ready and you want to figure out what's going on and you're curious. Um, you know, I think that those, those are the kinds of people that I have found are the most capable and excited to get to the root cause of something and find out what's going on. Nice. Um, yeah, it's a great answer. Um, okay. So we're kind of flip-flopping here and <laughs> back, <laughs> back two years ago when I took over hosting the super data science podcast from Kirill Aramenko, um, one of his main things to me was like, you don't want to change gears too many times. Okay. And he's, and he's absolutely right. But we've so, done that a lot. So, so let's just keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so we were just talking about tools and then I had you talking about, uh, career guidance. And I feel like this is kind of just, it's how the conversation is going, but there's a really important tool question that I want to get back to. So okay. changing gears back. <laughs> so sorry for the jarring topical experience, <laughs> listener. This is, this is a real life conversation. Um, so I noticed a post around the time that we started talking about you being on the show. And because you're so in demand with big Call of Duty releases and these kinds of things, it took a while to get you on the show. So several months ago, you had a post on LinkedIn uh, where you were answering the question, Windows or Mac? So Carly, <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Which of the two options <laughs> do, you, do you choose? See, none of the above. Oh, <laughs> I <yeah>. know. <laughs> what a curveball. <laughs> um, you know, no, I will say that for my daily driver at work, I do use a Mac. I find that, you know, for data science in particular, I think that Mac has done a lot to make like, you know, the native Z shell is amazing. Like they make doing data science really straightforward. Um, but in for my personal computer, I will say that I still use Linux. Um, I don't know if it's the contrarian in me or what my issue is because I always have technical problems with LinkedIn. <laughs> I've had technical problems in this podcast, <laughs> but I refuse to give up. <laughs> I think it's some sort of like refusal to admit defeat and persistence. <laughs> Maybe it's the problem solver in me, right? Like things break. My drivers don't always work. Like it's just, it's always something, but it gives me something to do. And it's like my baby now, you know, like this mm -hmm. operating system I've tailor made to myself. And so, oh, yeah. you know, if you want to spend most of your time debugging issues on with drivers <laughs> and compatibility, get Linux, get with it. Let's all join a chat and complain together. It'll be great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the amount of flexibility is huge. So often you'll see like really hardcore programmers who, yes. you know, don't own a mouse <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and are doing everything in Emacs. Yes. They'll be using Linux for sure. And everything is customized, optimized where it's, it's, keyboard only your key yes. you never need to leave your keyboard and that is something on a mac you can't really do that you can't be no. that level of hardcore with your programming yeah i don't like the lack of customizability on either windows or mac i do think that it's getting a little bit better from what i've seen just from my usage of mac at work um but i will also say you know if anyone's listening who's wanting a gaming career to get into game development windows is still 
king there, you know, most game development happens on windows. And so, you know, all three get used. I actually have a PC right here as well, but you know. So do you game mostly on the PC or do you have like a console? I also have a console. So I have, I just like, I can't stop. I have everything. So I have a PS five is my like daily uh, console, <laughs> which I love, but I actually have an Xbox series X as well. And I prefer the controller on Xbox. I think it's more ergonomic and it's easier to use after a long time. The PlayStation controller actually hurts my hands. Hmm. Um, but I also probably have carpal tunnel from typing all day. <laughs> I noticed, <laughs> I, I noticed that you probably have a really snazzy keyboard. I could hear in before we started recording, uh, there were, you know, very strong hammers. It felt like those keys yes. were going a very far distance. Do you have a special yes. keyboard you want to tell the listeners about? Well, I do. I have this real force keyboard that I love. Um, it's really cool. Matte black, black on black. Uh, it's actually not as clacky as my other keyboard. I think this one has, um, no, this one I think has the brown switches. So this actually has blue switches, which is the clackiest keyboard that I own. I brought this to an office one time and all my cube mates told me that I had to take it home. <laughs> they were like, it's yeah, so there's, for our audio, uh, only oh, consumers, uh, we have, <laughs> Carly was just showing me. She, there's the entire time that we've been recording this episode. There's been a keyboard on the shelf behind her. <laughs> that's that's the clock idea. So, so just tell us again. What are the what's the one that you're using regularly? So my regular daily driver, I think, are the MX Brown switches, and then this is a blue, which is extremely clacky. So my display keyboard that isn't my daily driver anymore because I can't right. be on a video call and also type. Um, right. With that one, because everyone knows I'm not paying attention. But with this one, I can kind of stealth multitask. And you can hear me typing, but you're not sure that's what it is. <laughs> with this one, you're like, are you in a tornado? Like, is there something <laughs> going on? <laughs> nice. And then, so I've never owned a keyboard that's like that, that hardcore. What's the like, what is the draw of such a loud keyboard like it's just it's a real joy to type on it's the tactile feedback i don't know how to right. explain it but it's the same reason why my linux pc is a thinkpad because i think for a laptop they have the best keyboard there's just something about when you're coding or typing like knowing that your keystrokes like that tactile feedback is very satisfying mm -hmm. to me mm -hmm. Um, it's also a reason why I absolutely hate my Mac keyboard. I think it's yeah. one of the mm -hmm. worst. I have one of the old butterfly keyboards. Anyone who knows about oh, them yeah. will Those comment on this video and be like the worst. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Cause it feels like you're mushing your fingers into the sand. Like it's just. Yeah. And they, they are famously breakable as well. They that butterfly one break constantly back in. Yeah. Yes. Not a fan. Um, Mac, get it together. Put some blue yeah, switches I, on your <laughs> I think MacBook the, Pro. <laughs> since at least, yeah, MacBook Pro since the M1, which is mm -hmm. the one that I'm currently recording with, wow. it does have more of a keyboard feel. Do you have an escape key? I have an escape key and I don't have the that like touch bar thing is gone. Oh, that's so nice. See, mm -hmm. sometimes form over function, this, these kind of decisions, I'm just like, you need to mm -hmm. not do these things. Yeah, it's a lot less pretty than previous generations, but way more functional. Yeah, yep. I'll mm -hmm. take it any day. I need a full keyboard function the, keys. The only thing that really annoys me about it is just, I assumed that we were going 
unilaterally in the direction of everyone being on USB-C. So all of my gear is all USB-C all the time. And on the latest MacBook Pros, they dropped one of the four USB-C ports to put in an HDMI port, which they hadn't had for years. And like, I don't have any displays anymore that use HDMI. So now I've just lost a port. USB-C now. Uh, I know. And so ports to choose to bring back, why HDMI? Like I have an uh, issue with Mac's lack of ports, but it's never been about, I wish I had HDMI. It's like, well, I wish I had a USB-A port. Let's just be real. I have some old school <laughs> shit here. Like this yeah. keyboard. <laughs> the thing that would happen to me and I have seen happen to other people is you'd get to like an important business meeting at like an investor's office and all they have is HDMI and you're like, ah, no, and I forgot like, my adapter. Everyone gather around yeah. my computer. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, cool. So some great hardware tips there. Um, We're really doing a good job here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, changing gears. Um, <laughs> so you have a master's in computational chemistry. <laughs> Seriously, that's where I'm going with the next question. Um, but I will tie it into the conversation from before by saying, how did you transition into data science from that past. I mean, to me, actually, having known a fair bit about like bioinformatics and doing a lot of computational biology stuff uh, in my graduate studies, I have a really good sense of why computational chemistry was so useful to you uh, in data science. Um, But yeah, tell us about that transition from computational chemistry to data science. What parts were easy? What parts were hard? Where do you have advantages because of that background? I would say the easiest part was that I had already, I had the statistics training. I had the mathematics training for the computational part. I had already been using Python. Um, I was also using Fortran, which ended up not being helpful. Spoiler <laughs> anyone out there messing with that. But, um, you know, there were a lot of technical things that I think lined up really well and made a lot of sense. Um, but in terms of the hardest thing for me was coming up with a way to explain to recruiters, hiring managers, why they should hire this chemist. Because when they saw my resume, that's all they saw was like, oh, you're a chemist. All of your experiences in chemistry. Why are you applying to this job? Did you accidentally apply? Are you, you know, then the the questions about breaking bad would come up. They'd be like, the only thing I know about chemistry is about how to make meth. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess this interview is already over if that's what you're thinking about. (laughs) So for me, it was like crafting that elevator pitch, coming up with a story for why I would be a good addition to their team, what skills I could bring outside of chemistry and how they translated. That was the hardest part was like crafting that narrative, crafting that story, making sure my resume told the same story that I would tell in interviews and everything was cohesive enough that it made sense. And they were like, of course, a chemist would apply to this job and Mm. not what is this, you know? Right, right, right. So would that kind of be your general guidance to people moving from a hard quantitative science? I mean, it seems crazy to me if it's a computational chemistry, that seems like really obviously related to what we do in data science. But like, do you have advice for people coming from quantitative sciences, hard sciences? Um, I guess that would be it to make sure that you craft your resume in a way so that the story arc is clear to the interviewer just from glancing at your resume that even though your degree says 
chemistry in the title that throughout that degree, you were learning how to apply quantitative methods computationally. Yes. <laughs> which, guess what, is data science. Exactly. Yep. I would say that's that's the best thing you can do, right? I and mean, get a, a second, a third, a fourth opinion on your resume. If someone looks at it and is like, yeah, I still kind of don't know what some of these key words mean. Like, you know, as a chemist, why are you still referencing like ultraviolet radiation? You know, take the things off your resume that you think tell the story of who you were in your old field and tailor it to the new one. And this can be really hard for people. And I get it because I was, I wouldn't say all these papers and you're like really proud of them. Exactly. But I was more of an expert than most people in my area. And moving to an entirely new career meant I had to let that go and I had to start over. And I couldn't hold on to that and try to convince people of my expertise in the way I was used to. I had to switch and completely change the language I used and start over as a newbie. And it was really hard. Um, And I think of this, it's actually, it's not really related at all, but it makes me think of one of my really good friends um, is her English isn't her first language. And she said to me once, it was so funny that sometimes she feels like she just wants to say to people, you have no idea how smart I am in Spanish. <laughs> like <laughs> when you're struggling to explain yourself in you know, a language that's not your native tongue, right. that you feel like you have all these other skills that maybe people aren't seeing and they don't know about. And that is a little bit, not to the extent of that, but that's a little bit about how I felt when I was leaving behind all these skills I had in chemistry. And I had to just be like, you have no idea how good I was at this thing, but it doesn't matter anymore. And I have to move on. <laughs> nice. That was a great answer. Uh, so with uh, these kinds of career tips that you have, these are the kinds of things that you actually offer to the public at any time. So anybody who's listening to this show, you can go right now to say Carly's LinkedIn page. And at the top of her page, there is a button like at the very, very, very top where, I don't know, some point this year, I think you you added LinkedIn out of the capacity to have URLs right at the top of your yep. file. So it says like Carly Taylor, her title, what she does, what she talks about, the hashtags, where she's based. And then there's this thing that says, let's connect in blue. And it's a, clearly a URL. You can click on that. And it takes you to a page where you can book time with Carly to get one-on-one career advice. That's cool. Yep. Thanks. Thanks for the shout out. <laughs> but I'm, yeah, I've, I've, I mean, you're probably aware of like other people that do that, but I've never seen anybody else do it. Oh, really? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, I love talking to people. I love getting to know people. Um, you know, I've tried to find a way to streamline the way that I'm able to connect as you know, I started to reach out to more and more people and my following on LinkedIn got bigger. I had to figure out a way to kind of like optimize this, right? It was more problem solving. It was like, I'm getting too many emails that I can't respond to because of the volume. People want to talk one-on-one with me, but I don't necessarily know how to go about setting this up and balancing it with the fact that I still have a nine to five job. Um, and so, yeah, I've, I've tried really hard to make something that works for people to where they feel like they can get one-on-one advice with me if they want. Um, I've tried to keep my prices to the point where it's just like, it makes sense enough for me. It's not as much money as I make in my day job, but it, you know, it's enough to where I can dedicate time to you and your problems and I can sit down and spend time with you and, you know, we can come to a conclusion and I can help you as much as I can. Yeah. And it's the kind of advice, especially if you are the kind of person, and I'm sure there's lots of listeners out there like this, 
where you're looking to get into a data science related career yeah. or you're looking to progress in it and you don't know, you don't have friends that do it. Yeah. Um, we probably don't have that many like parents that came from a data science background uh, that we can like ask yeah. them for advice. Um, and so, and, and sometimes, especially if it's maybe something like a career move to another company or just something yeah. you're considering, can't talk to your colleagues about it. Yeah. So then having uh, Carly is your therapist. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of it ends up being a little bit of that, I will say. <laughs> I bet. I mean, how is, you know, a big career change, yeah. it's intricately linked with the whole rest of your life. Yep. Um, and actually, the episode that aired just before this one on Friday, episode 644, was with um, this professor who has spent decades researching how the like the entanglement of career and personal decisions. Interesting. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, and yes, yeah, she has some some advice that people can go back to there and <laughs> and dig into if you haven't already listened to that episode. But yeah, and any of your specific career questions, you can talk to Carly about if you'd like to. And so. Uh, you describe yourself, I think this is kind of related to your data science career counseling and guidance persona, which by the way, also, I mean, that's how you've developed this enormous LinkedIn following, right? Is by providing career advice in general, by posting about it. Yeah. Um, so at the time of recording, you're over 70,000 followers, which is crazy. Um, so in all of this persona, you describe yourself as the rebel data scientist. <laughs> So what does that mean? That's so funny. Someone else described me that way. And I was like, this is amazing. I love it. And I was like, it wasn't my intention to be seen that way. But I think that, you know, what I've always tried to be, especially on LinkedIn, was authentic to myself, um, authentic for my followers so that they knew, you know, I'm not sugarcoating things. I don't like make fluff pieces. I'm not going to make this career or what I do seem like it's anything other than the reality of what it is. Um, and I think that that very direct communication style, the no nonsense, no sugar coating, tell it like it is kind of personality that I have anyway, right. comes across as almost rebellious in this space where we're often told, you know, we have to be a certain way or we have to conform to some sort of idea of what a professional looks like. And I've always, you know, thought that that was kind of, you know, BS. I don't think that there's one way you have to be to be a professional, um, you know. And so I'm just out here with my tattoos and my nose piercing and just trying to get through life and be exactly who I am. And so people know, you know, show up nice. to meetings and hoodies. <laughs> <laughs> but to be fair in gaming, that's pretty chill. <laughs> Uh, well, that's great. It's nice to have that background. And yeah, so, uh, yeah, can't recommend highly enough if you're looking for an advocate, uh, to get promoted, to navigate situations with leadership, to mindfully leverage your strengths, to optimize your career, follow Carly, uh, and consider booking time with her. So, uh, brilliant. Uh, one piece of specific career advice that you might be able to provide all of our listeners on air is related to patents. Yes. So you have a patent called real-time analysis of in-field collected well fracturing data. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that sounds like 
So this is well fracturing. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you, I, I, I don't know why I'm going to try to guess what this means. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's like people have wells for storing water or whatever, and sometimes it's they break. And that's for yeah. oil. Um, oh yeah, of course, yeah. fracking. Yes, you know what's funny is that. I thought when I was working in fracking, right, I was like, this is the most controversial job I could ever have. I'm a data scientist. I'm working with these oil and gas companies. You know, they've got this really bad reputation. Um, And when I switched to gaming is when I received the most negative feedback from people about just like the haterade and the hater comments went off the chain from gaming. And I was like, you guys know I used to work in fracking, right? Like that's way (laughs) more, you know, I could understand Like you have a leg to stand on if you're going to criticize me for that. But for the game, I was just, I was so surprised by it. Why do people, because of like violence in games? Um, I think people just have very strong opinions about games, about how they should be designed, about what their experience in gaming should be like, um, about what, you know, women should have a role in gaming, about, Uh, you know, there's a lot lot of baggage there. Jeez, wow. It's not often. I would say the majority of my communications with players, everyone's very happy. They love the game. They're very complimentary. Um, but you do have some people that, you know, don't vibe with. Um... Rebel data sets. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, making fun of trolls is one of my favorite pastimes, though, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So this fracking patent. Um, so you have experience with with getting patents, what do what do people need to do? If somebody has an idea and they're like, should I patent it? How do I do that? How, you know, how do they make those decisions? Yeah, I would start by saying, um, if you have an idea personally and it's not at work and you think it's patentable, start doing some research. So you need to go out there and see like what has already been patented. Is there something like this that already exists? Uh, I will say that just from, first of all, I'm not an attorney. Second of all, I'm not your attorney. So this is not legal advice, but from just like my experience with this, you know, the scope of patents is supposed to be very tight. And so I couldn't patent, let's say like uh, a device to talk to other people, right? Like that would be way too broad. It's like, is that, are these headphones? Is that a speaker? Is it a megaphone? Like, what are you talking about? Um, And so you need to be very precise in what you're patenting and it needs to have very defined boundaries within the space of, you know, to be considered original IP. Now, if you do still think that your idea is defined enough that it's patentable and that there's no prior art in the field that would, you know, exclude you from patenting it because someone beat you to it, um, talk to an attorney. So there are patent attorneys. They make very good money, so be prepared to pay. If you are looking for a career and you're unsure if you want to be a data scientist, but you've always liked law, I would say go get a JD and like do data science patent law because you're going to have tons of people coming to you, paying you the big bucks to understand what's going on. Um, but you're going to talk to an attorney. They're going to explain your invention to them. They're going to ask lots of questions. You're going to go back and forth with them a lot. They're going to give you their expert advice on whether they think your invention is patentable what route you might take to patent it, um, what they think the scope of the invention should be. And then, yeah, they will, when you pay them, help you go through the entire process with the patent office, um, go through revisions if necessary. You'll go through, um, your patent can be either non-provisional or provisional. 
and they'll walk you through everything and explain to you exactly how that's going to go down. Nice. Yeah. Uh, that's great general guidance. And you started all that off by saying, if you, you know, if this is something outside of your work, so yes. I guess if it's inside of your work, then you just talk to somebody there and see if, exactly. if there's general Hopefully counsel or something. Internal counsel at your company yeah. who can help you who's done this before. So most, I would say big tech companies have existing patents. They know exactly how to go through this. They might even have a like a bounty program for patents. Like some people I know will get paid bonuses for patenting um, because it makes the company look good. It's a way to protect their IP. It is going to be work from you, right? So they want to give an incentive program. Um, but it does also look good on your resume. So even if you're not, you know, getting anything from your employer for doing it, I would say it's worth asking because, you know, you should be able to tell the world about something cool you did put it on your resume that you have some sort of machine learning patent. Um, and it's an exciting thing. Yeah. Cool. Um, all right. So changing gears. <laughs> um, we have, yeah, great patent advice. There some great uh, general career advice. Let's see if you can give some advice to some of our listeners who have asked you specific questions. So right. when I posted that you were going to be on the show, it was an extremely popular post, uh, more than 25,000 impressions, several hundred reactions, uh, several dozen comments. And some of them are just saying things like Carly is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Agree. <laughs> uh, and some people used seemingly video game expressions that I don't understand, like security strategy sounds pog. <laughs> pog. <laughs> Uh, I'll let you look that up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, did I just swear on air? I don't even no. know. Uh, and then, yeah, and then we had some really uh, thoughtful questions from people. Uh, Viraj Rana had ones about your career, but I think we've actually basically covered those. Like, um, why did you transition? Actually, you know what? We didn't cover that. We talked about how you transitioned from computational chemistry to data science. We didn't talk about why. Oh, well, this is a great story. So be me, be 22 when I finished undergrad and looking for jobs as a chemist. You've been told your whole career since high school that like chemistry is this viable field. There's tons of jobs. There's just jobs growing on job trees everywhere. You can work wherever you want. So you're looking and you're like, feeling like this is not the truth. There's not that many jobs. And you realize that the one job that keeps coming up and the job that nobody wants is working at a drug testing facility, testing <laughs> people's urine. Oh. And then you realize, oh, great. So the jobs that are so abundant are in urinalysis labs. Oh, and wow. this is going to be the job that I could get working in a lab, making $15 an hour. And then you go to one of these jobs to take an interview because you're desperate and you need money. And the interview is you standing in a closet with pee samples for 10 minutes. <laughs> and if you can last, you get the job. And wow. you realize, I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> wow. Yes. And so I loved chemistry, but I became disillusioned with the fact that, you know, I had spent from undergrad four years of my life after grad school an additional two. Um, 
becoming an expert in a field and something that I thought was super useful. You know, I knew how to do everything from making aspirin to like telling you if someone had been doing cocaine from looking at their urine, right? Like things, skills that you would think people might need in this world. I could make detergents. I could make you a flavor that tasted like butterscotch in a lab, <laughs> right? Like all sorts of cool that you think is going to be really useful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I couldn't find a job. And the jobs I could find were not that great. And my job prospects were making $15 an hour. And so with all of that combined, and then the fact that a bunch of my friends were getting poached by fintech companies to do quantitative trading and data science, um, I realized like I actually had the skills to also go do that. And I didn't have to be trapped in a lab with P for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that why all makes perfect sense. And I wonder <laughs> if this, the person who asked the question, Viraj, is a computational researcher at Penn State oh uh, working on protein science. Okay. And so, yeah, maybe you too, Viraj, like, will discover. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like they found a good career path for themselves. Maybe I just was in the wrong city. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, there's more stuff here about people, I guess, speaking to that, your rebel data science moniker, there's people like Harley always has such valuable tips and info and in a no nonsense way too. All right. And then we have a question here from Yusuf Ali, who's a data scientist. Uh, I'm not sure if it's at university of Michigan or whether he went to university of Michigan. I'm just reading the top snippet that we have on Yusuf, <laughs> uh, here, uh, that I can see on the comment. And so First of all, Yusuf said that you and I are two of his favorite data science content creators. So <gasps> thanks for that, thanks, Yusuf. Yusuf. Uh, so he couldn't wait for this episode. I hope you're enjoying it so far. It has been a it's lot of laughs, hasn't it, Yusuf? Riot. <laughs> um, and so Yusuf asks, how much of a boys club is data science compared to other professions? That's a great question. Um, you know, I've had a career trajectory that I would say has been in fields that were predominantly male dominated, um, starting with STEM and chemistry, moving into data. Now I'm in gaming. Um, I will say though, that for data science specifically, I've found that there is a really good balance of men and women in the field. I think that we have some amazing data influencers like Daliana Liu, got um, Jess Ramos, we have Megan Liu, like people out here who are women in data speaking about their experiences, doing kick-ass stuff in the field, um, and really making a name for themselves. And so I don't think that data science in particular has the same issue that some of the other industries I've worked in. Oil and gas, too, we were just talking about that, right? That was a total boys club. Um, and so I think that data is actually a good mix of men and women and non-binary individuals who are all just coming together, looking at data problems, trying to make sure that, you know, we're using data and AI ethically. We're talking about the cool stuff we're building. We're bringing other women and underrepresented groups to the table. Um, and so, yeah, I'd say that it's been more balanced than other industries in my experience. Nice. I'm glad that you're having that experience. Yeah, uh, yeah that was a nice answer. And then, yeah, so we had lots, we had, there was so many questions and comments Many of the questions, in fact, I'm going to say of all the other questions that people asked, we've either already covered them or they were asking for stuff that I am certain would be something that you can't talk about on air <laughs> anyway, because they're like, 
really way too specific about okay. proprietary stuff that you're doing at work. So uh, great questions. Love the level of engagement. And so thank you everyone for those questions. And thank I hope you. you have enjoyed this episode. All right, Carly, we are actually wrapping up. Wow. Uh, which means that it's time to ask you for a book recommendation if you have one. Oh, okay. I'm turning around for everyone who's just listening and looking at my uh, bookshelf right here. You know what I'm going to have to do? We're lucky that you have a mic that is on a headset, so you can be turning around and doing whatever. I know. The except, great for except the cord's not quite long enough for me to get very far from my So you, you couldn't pick the book that you wanted. You couldn't <laughs> no. pick the book that you could reach. <laughs> I would never do that to my friend, Joe. Okay, so it looks like this is going to be mirrored on video. But the fundamentals of data engineering, my really good friend, Joe, wrote this with uh, his partner, Matt. This is an amazing book. Um, it came out just this year, published by O'Reilly. Fundamentals of Data Engineering, How to Plan and Build Robust Data Systems. I would say that Anyone who is in data needs to read this book because it's not just for data engineers. Understanding how the data that you need gets to you, how to make smart decisions about your data, how to make smart decisions about your infrastructure, or even how to talk to those geniuses who build it for you. <laughs> if you don't have to do it yourself, this right here, highly, highly, highly recommend. Yeah, and I'll the bird on the front is so cute. <laughs> I also highly recommend that book. We had Joe Reese and Matt Housley on the show specifically talking about that book in oh, episode number 595. And I implore constantly on the show how as the orders of magnitude of the data sets that we're working with increase year over year, being able to engineer your own data pipelines yes. as a data scientist is becoming an increasingly essential part of the job. You can't just rely on having the nice, tidy, cleaned up, relatively small data set that you can work with and build a machine learning model from as a data scientist anymore. Uh, you need to today, and even more so in the future, be able to engineer your own data pipelines and get those data for your own models. Yes, I completely agree. Um, what a way to be a competitive candidate too, right? Like a data scientist who understands the fundamentals of data engineering. Can't get any better than that, except for someone who can also communicate. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Um, and who loves solving problems. So Carly, it's been an amazing episode. I wish it could go on forever, but sadly, even good things must come to an end. Uh, and so my final question for you is, how should people be following you after the show? We know that you have this hugely dominant presence on LinkedIn. We've already talked about that on air. Is there anywhere else that people should be following you? Um, I have some new things coming in 2023, I will just say, expanding mm. to new platforms. Mm. Uh, so I will be updating my LinkedIn following with that new news coming next year. All right, and by next year, uh well <laughs> that's 2023 In early 2023 three right? weeks <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we're we're recording this episode right at the end of 2022 but it will be published in early 2023 so early this year early this uh, year maybe it already happened i don't know are we living in the future <laughs> living in the future. Um, that was a relatively niche reference to the South Park movie that was recently released on Paramount. Uh, <laughs> we'll watch it. 
It's so funny. I really, really Is like it. Is it good? I need to go watch um, it, actually. It's literally the only reason to get a Paramount Plus subscription. And that point <laughs> is made many times in the South Park movie. Is that, I, I love that. I That's watched so it and then ended my subscription. Um, <laughs> all right. So, Carly, thanks so much for being on the show. And I'd love to check in again in a couple of years, see how you're doing. This was such a fun episode. Yes, let's do it. I'm always around. I'll be in this room. Nice, nice. That was so much fun. Hope you had a blast too. In today's episode, Carly filled us in on how online engineers use SQL, PySpark, and Kafka streams to enable real-time machine learning within a low-latency gaming experience. She also talked about how the video games of the future will have real physics everywhere, more persistence, more simultaneous players, more demographics represented, and more of a presence in mobile operating systems. She also talked about how she's excited about SHAP for explainable AI, particularly for plotting interaction terms. She talked about why the super customizable Linux operating system is her favorite operating system in general, but that she uses a Mac, particularly its Z shell for work and data science. And she filled us in on how to go about filing a patent, whether you're part of a big company or you're out on your own. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Carly's social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 645. That's superdatascience.com slash 645. If you too would like to ask questions of future guests of the show, like several audience members did during today's episode, then consider following me on LinkedIn or Twitter, as that's where I post who upcoming guests are and ask you to provide your inquiries for them. Another way we can interact is coming up on March 1st when I'll be hosting a virtual conference on natural language processing with large language models like BERT and the GPT series architectures. It'll be interactive, practical, and it'll feature some of the most influential scientists and instructors in the large natural language model space as speakers. It'll be live in the O'Reilly platform, which many employers and universities provide access to. Otherwise, you can grab a free trial, a free 30-day trial of O'Reilly using our special code. This is brand new, first time I'm saying it on air. We just got a special code from O'Reilly to get you this free 30-day trial, and the special code is SDSPOD23. That's SDSPOD23. And we've got a link to that code ready for you in the show notes to click on. All right, thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science Podcast episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Sylvia, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another outstanding episode for us today. For enabling that super team to create this free podcast for you, we are deeply grateful to our sponsors whom I've hand-selected as partners because I expect their products to be genuinely of interest to you. Please consider supporting this free show by checking out our sponsors' links, which you can find in the show notes. And if you yourself are interested in sponsoring an episode, you can get the details on how by making your way to johncrone.com podcast. Last but not least, thanks to you for listening all the way to the end of the show. Until next time, my friend, keep on rocking it out there, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.